Golf is a very frustrating game. I played a golf tournament with Vic and my dad uh, a couple weeks ago now, and there were many moments out there that uh, that we were entirely frustrated and, and wanted to go home, trust me. Uh, but there's something even worse than just playing bad golf. The thing that's worse than playing bad golf is playing bad golf and then having somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about try to tell you how to play golf better. Right? I, I mean, my most frustrated moments in all of my golf's history, and I've been playing it a long time, is when I'm playing bad and then some guy that I'm with that doesn't know anything about golf is looking at me and going, hey man, if you just change your grip a little bit. Hey, hey, just aim over to the left about 100 yards further and you'll be closer to the green. There's nothing more frustrating. And life is kind of the same. When things go bad, it, it can hurt and it can be frustrated. But there is nothing worse than having life go bad and then having somebody come alongside you and telling you why your life is going bad when they don't know what they're talking about. And for the remainder, pretty much, of, in the book of Job, what we see is exactly that. We see a man named Job that we've been talking about who had everything, right? He had wealth and he had uh, power and he had a good family. He had all of this stuff, and then all of those things were ripped from him in an instant. And his life is horrible. And, and not only that, but then he gets this horrible skin disease where there's blackish pus coming out of his skin all over the body. And, and so Job is in the worst possible situation that he can possibly be in. And last week we studied chapter 3 of the book of Job. And in chapter 3, uh, Job said for a whole chapter in the Bible, I wish I was dead. Chapter 4 through 14 and the rest of the book what we see is job's friends show up these are good friends we talked about that last week they really care about job but they're going to tell job why he is suffering and they really don't know what they're talking about and it's going to leave job very very frustrated but before we look at at 4 through 14 and, and the remainder of the book there's there's a couple of hermeneutical things that you need to understand. Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret something plain and simply. So biblical hermeneutics is the study of how to uh interpret the Bible, how we understand the Bible that we read. And and there's a couple of things that you need to know in order to understand the book of Job, which is a wildly difficult book, in my opinion, to interpret and understand. And so uh, so before we even look at it, if you're not just going to be frustrated, hopefully you're reading along and, and you're investing time with your connect groups, but, but, but you've, you maybe have been frustrated. So let me help you out with a couple of things. First of all, you have to remember that the book is a book written in poetry. It is a, a poem, and, and if you try to read it in any other way, it's just not going to work for you. Let me give you uh, kind of a, just a way of understanding that. If you try to read a poetry book today, go down to the library, get a poetry book, and you try to read it like you would read a science book, then, then you'd think, wow, I can't believe that that woman has a whole ocean in her eyeball. She needs to get some help, right? Things like that. And so when you read a book, you need to understand it within the type of literature that it is. The, the same could be opposite. If you try to read a science book like a poetry book, you, you'd sit around all day thinking, I wonder what Einstein really meant when he said E equals MC squared. I mean, I wonder what was going on somewhere in his psyche that made him come to that conclusion. It just doesn't work, right? And so if you try to read the book of Job as a science book and not a poem, then you're going to be pretty frustrated by the things that Job says. You'll say, well, that's not right. I mean, that's not even accurate, right? We know things about the world today that, 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 that say that's not true. And so you need to read it as a poem. 
The other thing, and this was really difficult for me because I, I like a good debate, and, and this debate that rages through the book of Job doesn't seem like a good debate because what happens is a friend talks and then Job responds, but Job doesn't seem to be talking about what the friend's talking about. And so with the cursory reading of the book of Job, I just, I, I just am like, Job, you're not even responding to what that guy just said. I have no idea what you're talking about. And then the friends respond, and I think the same thing. Did you hear anything that that guy just said? But what happens in the book is it's written in the form of a contest, a, a speech contest. And uh, it, there probably still exists somewhere, but it's an ancient form of, of a contest in which people would give speeches in succession. And the speeches were not meant to prove the other person wrong. They were simply meant to have better rhetoric than the guy that spoke before you. And so when you read a friend talk and then you read Job talk, it's not like Job is trying to disprove what his friend is saying. He's trying to say something different in a better way than his friend has already said the opposite thing. Does that make sense? And so when you read it, my frustration has been every time I read the book of Job, are you guys even listening to each other? Are you in different rooms having this conversation? But when you understand that it's contest literature, contest speeches, then you understand that the two of them are simply trying to say things better, and that's how they're going to win this argument. Okay? The third thing that you need to understand is that, and this is, this is hard for us, most of the things that are said in the book are pretty true. They're fairly true. They're almost all the way true, but not quite. And so what happens in the book of Job is the guys have this theology. God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And the rest of the Bible seems to back that up. We see lots of things throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that seem to say that. God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And so we look at that and we say, well, that seems, that seems pretty true. I mean, what are they saying that's wrong? And when you get to the end of the book, what happens is, is God says, well, these guys didn't speak right. And the question is, well, what did they say wrong? Because I'm reading it, and in our Connect group on Tuesday night, we do the thing at the end of our Connect groups where we say, what are you taking away from this? And Sharon Plummer said, well, I'm taking away this verse. And it was one of the things that the friends had said. And I'm like, well, that's the wrong team. You, you can't like what they say, but most of the things they say are kind of true. And so this is where they go wrong. They go wrong in their logical application of a theological truth. So they say, I understand that God blesses the righteous and that God punishes the wicked. And so it must be true that whenever somebody is not blessed, they are wicked and there is wickedness within them. And so they look at Job in all of his misery and they say, well, I know God blesses the good and, and, and punishes the bad. And so you must be doing something bad because God is not blessing you. You see this in, in, in a different way in our, our modern world, and all you have to do is find Christian TV, and, and you'll see it quite clearly, right? There are people out there that teach, very straightforward, that if you are living a good life, God is going to bless you with lots of possessions, and you're going to get rich, right? If you call them, in fact, and donate some money, then God is going to return that money tenfold. And so they have this idea that's based on a theological truth, but what happens is they twist this idea, and what they end up saying is if, if you're not getting financially wealthy, then you must not be living the way that God wants you to live. And so if you would just start to live better then good things are going to start happening to you. And this is where the friends go wrong. They say, well, I know this theology, and so let me give you what I think logically must follow. And they say, hey, Job, you must be sinning. And so when you read their words, you can't look at every word and go, 
oh, these guys are wrong. God said at the end, I can't trust anything they're saying. No, but instead you have to see that the application of what they're saying is where they fall into trouble and what makes God so mad. And so we turn to their words now. The first man to speak is Eliphaz. In verse 2, he sums up uh, the mindset of the friends as we go into these chapters. He says, but who can keep from speaking? He says, look, Job, we're listening to you. You're talking about how you want to die. It, it just doesn't seem right to us. And so something's just kind of welling up inside of us, and we need to tell you the truth because we can no longer take it. And then verse 4, he says, your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. And then in verse 6, he kind of gives his point up front. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? And so he he looks at Job and he says, hey, Job, there's hope for you. I mean, you're in the midst of this great struggle, but let me tell you what your hope is. Your hope is that you have lived a pretty good life. Eliphaz is is pretty sensitive to Job compared to the other two guys. I wouldn't call him sensitive, but compared to the other two guys, he's pretty nice. And he says, look, you've lived a pretty good life. And so you can trust that eventually this is all going to be okay. It says in verse 7, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? And so he looks at Job and says, Hey, Job, I know you're suffering, but come on. You could be dead because God could just kill you off right now, but you've lived a pretty good life, and so you should be thankful for that. Now, this is the first moment where I just think, Wow guy that doesn't know what he's talking about is probably making Job pretty frustrated. I mean, how would you like to be in a situation and, and some guy walks up to you and says, well, the good news for you is I, I know your children died and your houses are gone and your health is horrible and your wife isn't being very nice to you, but it could definitely be worse. Good thing you've lived a good life, right? That's frustrating. I mean, now I'm not even thinking anymore about the, the pussy black stuff on my skin. I'm just mad at these friends that I have. And so he continues with this line of, of thinking. And in verse 17, he says, Can a mortal be righteous, more righteous than God, a strong man more pure than his maker? And then if you skip to chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. So here's his point. Job, it could be worse because you've lived a pretty good life. God is blessing you in some way. And think about the positives. Focus on the positives. We've heard that one before, right? But here's what he says. Here's the reason your trouble is coming to you. Because God is perfect and you are a man who is not perfect. And so therefore, because of that, trouble has come upon you. He says, look, this isn't about some gross sin in your life, something specific that you're doing wrong. It's simply coming upon you because humanity is sinful and we live in a fallen world. Sounds kind of right, right? But we're going to find out that it's not true in Job's case. And so that is the point of Eliphaz. And and Job is going, excuse me, he takes it one step further uh, in verse 17. He says, blesses the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Do you hear that? I mean, can anything be more frustrating than that? Hey, Job, look. You have the worst life of anybody on the planet right now. But God's just helping you avoid sin in the future. So you should be happy about this. Doesn't that make you kind of angry right now? Like, don't you want to yell? Like, really? God killed my kids because he's trying to prevent me from sinning in the future? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that is exactly what Eliphaz is saying. And then notice the insensitivity in verse 17. This is just like people to be insensitive. Uh, He says this, 
uh, excuse me, uh, at the end, it's not verse uh, 17. He says, you will know that your children will be many and your descendants will be like the grass of the earth. And it's based on verse 8, if you appeal to God. Hey, you'll get more kids. Don't worry about it if you will just turn and ask God to help you out of this situation. That's pretty bad. Job responds, but we're not going to look at his responses until the end, and what we're going to find in them is incredible and awesome. So let's turn our attention to the next frustrating response by Bildad. He says at the beginning, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? This is chapter 8, by the way. And then he says, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. He says, Look, God is all-knowing, and God knows what types of sin you are committing. And God is just. He is right in punishing you just like He was right in punishing your children by killing them for the sins that they had committed. That's terrible. I mean, that's just like the worst thing that this guy could possibly say. He says, look, Job, be happy because God is just punishing you for the things you've done. At least you weren't as bad as your kids whom He had to kill to punish. It's horribly insensitive. It's terrible. He keeps going. He says, but if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore to you the prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. He says, Job, look, God is perfectly holy. And so in comparison to him, you must be doing something that is terrible. It's fascinating that for Bildad, he doesn't apply that to himself, just the guy that, that is having a tough time in life. But, but he's saying, hey, you know, God is just perfect in his justice and he's doing exactly what you deserve. He goes on and he uses this great example. It just doesn't apply to Job, but I really like it. In verses 13 through 15, he says this about bad things. He says, such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold up. That's pretty true, right? I mean, we can look around and say people that, that rely on money, or they rely on fame, or they rely on how powerful they are, or how good their job is. Those things are as easy to crush as a spider's web, right? It's just simple for those things to go away. But Job, and this is where he runs into the problem, if you would just give up the sin and approach God and ask God to forgive you and ask God to make things right, then it would all get better for you. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, God is perfect. You are not, so you deserve this. So we have one man saying, look, you live in a fallen world. It's pretty, it's pretty modern thing that people say, right? It's just a fallen world. And so you deserve this because you are a sinner like everybody else. The second guy says, look, in, in, in light of God's perfection and God's holiness, of course you deserve this. There has to be something going on in your life that makes this the right thing for God to do. Well, Zophar, starting in chapter 11, He's had enough of the sensitivity, if you can call it that. And he just wants to get right to the point. He says right at the beginning of chapter 11, You say to God, my beliefs are flawless, and I am perfect in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. He says, look, Job, I can't see some sin in your life. You've always seemed like a good guy. But guess what? God knows everything about you and there must be some hidden sin that he is punishing you for. That's one people use a lot still, right? I mean, we've, we've probably heard situations like that where somebody looks at you and, and, and maybe not you, but, but somebody that's struggling, somebody that's sick, somebody that's had a, a, a disaster in their lives and they say, well, 
you know, I don't see anything wrong with you, but God knows all, and so he must be doing something to you to help you kind of move forward in your life. And that's what he says here, Zophar. And then he says this. Oh, man, and and this one, this would just set me over the top. I might have punched him right in the face. He says this. In fact, I added the in fact, know this. God has even forgotten some of your sin. He says, God's been merciful to you. You deserve worse than this. You deserve something far worse than what you're getting because of the hidden sin that we cannot see. I mean, if you're sitting there and you know that you're, that you're pretty blameless before God and somebody looks at you after you've gone through the worst tragedy, maybe that the world has ever known, but even just a tragedy that some of us have experienced, and somebody says to you, you deserved worse than that, wouldn't your blood just boil? I mean, wouldn't you just be ready to scream? He goes on in verses 7 through 11. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes you in a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceivers. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? You are being punished for the sin, so just fess up. Verse 13 to 16, he gives the way that Job can get out of this. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. If you will just ask God for forgiveness, ask God for mercy, then all of this will be a distant memory. Oh, man, I, I hate that without the sin part. I, I hate when people look at me and say, someday this will all feel better. You ever had that line? Someday this will be a distant memory. I remember when I first, the first time I got my, my heart broken, my grandma, God bless her soul, wanted me to feel better. And we were sitting, and, and I just ordered this amazing teriyaki burger um, at Rockin' Rogers in Salem. I remember it quite well. And she said, someday you'll laugh about this. I'm laughing right now, but I wasn't then. I can tell you that. I didn't eat a, a bite of my burger, and I sat there angry and sad and heartbroken. I was never getting over it, ever, 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 ever. Okay, ever. I was never getting over it. And so for somebody to say that, that, that I, I would laugh about it was the worst thing. And he's saying that. Someday, even though your kids died and your wife's mean and you have this horrible skin disease, you will, you will laugh about this because of the way God will bless you. If you will just give up your sin. And you will start to live for God. Job's response, in a nutshell, is this. And this is what's interesting. He says, I agree with your theology. He iterates that through the the 11 chapters. I agree with your theology. But in this case, you are wrong because I am innocent. Not sinless, not perfect, but innocent. I don't deserve this, Job says. He says, I wish I was dead again. He wants to make that very clear. I wish I was dead He says, I wish God would give me a court hearing so I could plead my case. And then he says, and this is the amazing part to me, I need Jesus. You say, well, Job lived 4,000 years before Jesus, so you have to be wrong about that. But the thing that Job cries out for just screams Jesus. Notice it here in verse 621, chapter 6, verse 21. He says this to God. He turns his attention to God, stops talking to his friends, and he says this. Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? 
He says, look, I don't deserve this, but if you would just take away all of my sin, then I could know that I could be free from this pain and this hurt that is going on. In fact, Job looks, and I think this is so interesting, and this is something we do. In the middle of all of it, he says, God, are you punishing me for the sins of my youth? And haven't you been there before where, where something happens years after you've done something bad that, that you just can't get over and it's inside of you and you go, oh man, God, you must be punishing me for that thing that I did way back then. And Job says, God, I need, I need forgiveness from the sin in my life. In John 1, 9, as we turn to the New Testament, we see that that came in the person of Jesus. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The difference between John 1, 9 and the hope that John has as he writes a letter to a church and the difference between that and Job is simply that Jesus came to die for the sins of the earth so that people could be pardoned for their sin. Paul in Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in Colossians 1.19 and 20, we see this, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. The Bible tells us that what Job hoped for thousands of years earlier finally came in the person of Jesus who died on a cross so that God could righteously and in justice forgive the sins that are in our lives. Job wants Jesus in other ways too though. In 9, chapter 9, 33 through 35, he says, If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together talking about God, someone to remove God's rod from me so that this, his tear would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but now, as it is now, stands with me, as it now stands with me, excuse me, I cannot. He wants to have this conversation with God. And he wants to say, God, look, I don't deserve this. Sure, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness from that, but I don't deserve what you've brought upon me. This is not something that is fair. And he wants to talk to God, but he says in the middle of all of it, even if I got in front of God, I would get so scared that my mouth would proclaim me guilty. He's not saying that he is guilty. He's saying, look, the fear of God and the awe of God would be so overwhelming that I would start to say stupid stuff and I would never be able to plead my case. And guess what? God might just kill me anyway. He says, I want to talk to God and I want to, I want to tell Him that I'm innocent and that I've lived for Him and that I love Him, but I can't do it. It's impossible. In 1 Timothy 2.5, we read this in the New Testament after Jesus, for there is one God, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ. An author said of this verse, Jesus represents those who have placed their trust in him, miserable sinners, before God's throne of grace. He mediates for us, much as a defense attorney mediates for his client, telling the judge, Your Honor, my client is innocent of all charges against him. This is true for us also, as someday we will face God but as totally forgiven sinners because of Jesus' death on our behalf, the defense attorney took the penalty for us. We see more comforting proof of this in Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. It is because of the great mediator that we are able to stand before God. Job says, I just want to have a conversation with God. And the New Testament says, we can. 
And not only can we have a conversation with God, but we can stand in his presence innocent because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and now sits at the right hand of the Father talking to him on our behalf. But that's not it. And this is probably my favorite part. Job longs for, for Jesus in another way. In Job fourteen thirteen through 17, he says this. And when he says this, he, he doesn't think this is going to happen. He's like, this is his dream. This is like me saying, I want to be in the NBA someday, right? This is, this is something Job wishes that could take place, but, but has no real hope that it will ever happen. In Job 14, 13 through 17, he says, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger is past. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer. You will, you will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. Job longs for a day when he is dead, and then he wakes up, and he experiences eternal life in the presence of God. Think about that. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying, look, I want a day when I can die, and I can rise again. In the presence of God and my sins will no longer be forgiven. And I will be in the presence of God so fully that he will count my steps. He even calls it the day of renewal. And when you go to the New Testament, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they say, Hey, Jesus, we've given up a lot for you. So what will we get when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says to them, interestingly enough, when the day of renewal comes, you will receive a hundredfold what, what you have given up in this life. What Job longs for is found only through Jesus and giving your life to Jesus Christ. If you looked over into Revelation chapter 21 verses 3 through 5, we see this day of renewal that Job looked for 4,000 years ago because of the personal tragedy in his life. We see it described. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among His people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. The book of Revelation says because of what Jesus did on the cross, now we can actually... Look forward to the day of our renewal when Jesus Christ will come back and He will make everything better and we will eternally live with Him in glory. It's amazing to me. And as I've been impacted this last week with this passage of Scripture, it's amazing to me how we just neglect the benefits that Jesus brought to us. I mean, God sent His Son to live on this earth and then die a horrible death so that we could have the things that some man named Job lived 4, 000, that lived 4,000 years ago wanted so desperately and so badly as he faced personal tragedy. And what I gather from this, what I see in all of this, is that for us, if we will give our lives to Jesus, then we can face the difficulties that this world brings us by remembering the hope that we have in Christ. If it weren't for Jesus then we would just be saying, oh man, these tragedies, I wish there was a solution. 
But Jesus offered a solution, and that solution is that he is the one who can forgive your sins, and he is the one who can mediate between you and God, and he is the one who offers eternal life so that someday you can know, no matter how bad it is here, no matter how hard things are, someday, someday, you can look forward to your renewal when Jesus walks in your midst and there are no longer tears or hurt or pain. And so here's what I, what I want from you. For some of you, you say, well, I'm, I'm not facing any great tragedies right now. Life is pretty good. That's where I'm at. Life is pretty good for me right now. And, and so as I'm looking at this passage, what, what, what for me and for those of you that are in the same type of situation, it's simply saying, man, Jesus, I'm thankful for you for more reasons than someday I'll be in heaven. I mean, right now in my life, I just need to be more thankful for Jesus and the great things that he brings. Because some man thousands of years ago wanted Jesus, and I know him personally. But for those of you that are going through tragedy and you're dealing with the hurts and the difficulties that this life throws at you, I just encourage you to turn your eyes to Jesus. Because if you don't have Jesus, if you don't look at Jesus, then then what happens is you're going to question. You're going to say, well... Is this because of my sin? Is this because of something I did 20, 30 years ago? Only in Jesus can we say no because those sins have been forgiven. I know that that that's not the case. And I encourage you to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I I just feel like nobody hears me. God, God, are you even there? Are Are you listening? Because look what I'm dealing with. Can't you see what's happening to me? And I encourage you to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know you're up there. And you're talking to God on my behalf. And you are, you are there on my side rooting for me and speaking for me and mediating between me and the living God. And finally, in a very real way, I encourage you to know that someday, maybe not in this life, I'll be honest, but someday you will experience the peace and the joy that you long for so desperately. You will experience the perfection, the lack of mixed dealing with the difficulty on this earth so difficult. We know, and I think we long for as human beings, something far better than what we experience on this planet, right? And Jesus has offered us that. And we can cling to that even when life is difficult. And I encourage you to do that. Will you pray with me? Lord, I guess I'm first sorry for the fact that I... uh, Sometimes I just neglect the, the amazing benefits that we have because you, you came to earth and, and died for our sins. And, and so I'm sorry for, for neglecting that, God, in my own heart and my own emotions and feelings, God. And even more than that, Lord, I, I would ask for the people here that they would, uh, that they would cling to you. God, we're, we're always dealing with something in life. Some people here are dealing with with far more pain than others, God, and I just really just pray for a special, just a special power through your spirit to come into their lives and, and just allow them, God, to take hope in the fact that you forgive sins and you mediate for us and you have offered eternal life, Lord. Jesus, I thank you for enduring so much pain and so much hurt, so much tragedy in order that we might have these amazing benefits through you. God, it's because of that that we even talk to you now, that, that we come to you, that we gather here, God, and, and that we sing to you. It's, it's because of what you did for us that we even have that ability, God, an ability that Job longed for. 
with all of his heart, God. So I thank you for that. And we love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.